Welcome to STEM Interviews, a science communication interview series powered by stemcognito.org, a not-for-profit platform showcasing the best in STEM research for free. STEM Interviews is hosted by ex-researcher turned professional science communicator Dr. Sarah Wettstadt. Each episode, Sarah chats to a scientist, technologist, engineer or mathematician about their research and why it's important for both scientists and non-scientists. She also asks about their science communication tactics, hobbies, career journeys and pretty much everything in between. Welcome to a new episode of our STEM interviews. Today I have with me Jake Salmon from the University of Toronto and she's going to talk about um, her dinosaur research and also her lovely flatmate or life partner who we can already see in the camera. <laughs> um, it's so lovely to have you with us. Thanks, thank you for having me. Can you just as a start summarize the research project that you're working on for our audience? Sure, yeah, I'm a PhD candidate at University of Toronto and the Royal Ontario Museum and I study theropod dinosaurs and I look at their bones under the microscope basically and look to see how old they were when they died. So I study the changes in their anatomy through their lifespan and also their uh, that's called their ontogeny. And then I look at how that might impact whether we are looking at lots of different species or whether we're accidentally naming young animals as their own individual species and, and getting okay. them a little bit confused that way. Okay, yeah. so you're basically finding new species or saying, hey, no, these two species, see, these two samples were actually the same species. They're just like 50 years yeah. apart from each other. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, wow. So it's like if you had a puppy and an adult dog, but you didn't know if you were like from another planet, you might think those are different species mm -hmm. until you learn that one is just the young version of the other. Yeah. And right now there's a lot of work kind of doing that in dinosaurs because it's pretty recent. Uh, the actual histology looking at the bones under the microscope is a somewhat recent uh, field. So we're sort of untangling that. What are the young ones look oh. like? What is the kind of sub-adults look like what did the adults look like nice and how can you actually distinguish that because under the microscope is still going to look like two different samples how do you find how do you actually say hey no this is actually the same species how do you do that that's a great question so uh, when we're looking at the bones to try to decide what we think the animal is a lot of these species actually look pretty similar and mm -hmm. so they're split on really fine differences um, and so when we look at the bones under the microscope we can actually see the cellular level detail of the bone tissue. That's how well a lot of fossils are preserved. Oh. And we, yeah, yeah. And we can look at the uh, vascularity, so the blood canals and how dense those are through the bone. We can look at the actual um, lacunae, the little spaces where the bone cells used to be and the matrix they lay down around themselves as they're building up the bone. We can look at all of that and these lines of arrested growth that develop mm -hmm sort of like tree rings, very similar. Yeah, I was thinking concept. of that actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so they, the bone grows outward and you get these pauses in growth uh, that indicate a slowdown and you can use those as sort of an annual marker and mm -hmm. you can figure out how relatively mature. We can't yeah. always get the exact age, but we can figure out like, okay, this one's very mature, this one's very young. Yeah, um, yeah and sort it out that way. So, so how old did dinosaurs get? What's like the oldest? <laughs> dinosaur that we oh yeah what's their lifespan basically? that's a really good question <laughs> um so 
we it's actually somewhat recent field, so we don't have a ton of age data for lots and lots of different dinosaurs, but we do have a good sample for very well-known charismatic triceratops. Um, we also what? have samples for T-Rex. Okay. Yeah, so um, previous research is showing that uh, the oldest T-Rexes that we have that have been sampled are somewhere in their late 20s to 30s, um, but that's probably not as old as they could get that's just the that's oldest nothing. one we have in the yeah. fossil record yeah so with dinosaurs and especially with something like a large predator a lot of them are kind of like live fast die young um so they're they're dying at an age that we're not sure if that's their maximum age or not yeah. we're getting kind of a skewed sample of the population so so far late 20s early 30s for something like a large theropod and smaller oh. dinosaurs have a slightly smaller slightly shorter sorry life okay span. Okay. Yeah, and then things like sauropods, the really big ones, um, they have slightly longer, so a couple, maybe a couple decades more than something like a T-Rex. Yeah, okay, I mean, that makes sense. Otherwise, you have all this biological mass, and then it's just dead after like 20 years. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> okay, that's so cool. So did you actually find like a species where you said like, okay, this used to be one, one species, this used to be another one, but actually it's the same? Did you find this yet? Uh, it has been shown in other work. So right now I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to figure out that question for a group of theropods called oviraptors. Okay. They are very silly looking. They have a beak. They don't have any teeth. They're feathered. They have like crests on their heads. They kind of look like a big cassowary-like thing. Okay. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. And they're, they're really well known for brooding on their nests. If you've been to uh, one of the larger natural history museums, you may have seen a dinosaur on a nest because a lot mm -hmm. of museums have a cast of some of these really famous uh, dinosaurs on top of their eggs. A lot of those are oviraptors. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't know very much about their growth and their diversity because there hasn't been very much of this histological work done on oviraptors. So that's what I'm tackling through my dissertation. And we think that we're pretty close to being able to uh, write up some results okay. showing nice. that a couple a couple of things um are, are probably actually the same species and just different growth growth morphs so i'm just finishing up some of my data collection and okay. hopefully we'll be writing writing that soon yeah so that's the the fun part huh the analysis and yeah. the discussion and how does it look to in, in other fields and other um species and other samples but yeah no that's so cool yeah. amazing so did you actually go out into the field yourself and took the samples where did you uh, for these, for, for my specimens I'm studying for my dissertation, no. Um, so paleo, paleontology is interesting. It's pretty rare to dig up something that you then work on for your degree mm -hmm. um, because the field collection process takes so long. So we collect something in the field, it's then prepped in the lab, and then it can be researched. Mm -hmm. So there's several steps and that can take a very long time okay. depending on the priority of the specimen we're talking many many years oh boy so, yeah <laughs> yeah so usually for a master's or a phd you uh, start with specimens that are already in museums or in the institution you're working at and then you dig to gain experience so mm -hmm. i have been on several digs they just weren't for the material i was okay. actually working on at okay. the time <laughs> okay yeah. more established more established paleontologists have gotten like to a point where they are doing that so not not early career folks but 
Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> it must be so interesting to know you have like 100 million old specimens there. And yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of specimens in collections still. We, I mean, we have things in field jackets from, you know, several past years that just haven't had time to move through the preparation process mm -hmm. in the lab yet. Yeah. Okay. So you're gonna, you think you're gonna stay in the field and actually do your own like uh, digging experiment and then actually prep the stuff yourself and find your own research question or? I would love to do that. Um, so we do, we come up with at the PhD level, most of us, um, depending on the institution, we do come up with our own research questions and we kind of figure out where are the specimens that we could use for this. Um, but yes, I would like to be a, a um, paleontologist professionally after my PhD, I would mm -hmm. like to be a field paleontologist nice. if possible. There's not yeah. very many job opportunities okay. doing field work and research. Yeah. It's a very small field, but I would really, really like to do okay. field work and research and, and teaching if I can, if I can oh, find it a sounds position good. that. Nice. Yeah. Especially because you have a bit of a challenge when it comes to field work yourself, which is why you have that yeah. lovely dog sitting next to you or sleeping yeah. actually. Um, how She's does that work for you? How does your disability disable you from field work or how is it another challenge? Well, that's research itself is an already question. big challenge. Yeah, that's a really good question. I have a difficult time in the field with some aspects, um, mostly heat and um, sort of like logistics of, of hiking and walking. And I have not actually done a field season since my disabilities have progressed to the point that they're at now. Mm -hmm. So it'll be interesting to see kind of how that goes, but I am really excited to, to get back out there and, and see how, uh, like what I can do to adapt it for myself. But um, previously when I've done field work, I just have to really bring a lot of extra supplies. Oh, so okay. I, yeah. Yeah, I bring a lot of extra like um, electrolytes and salt and things like that to add to my water because one of my disabilities um, affects my heart rate. Um, okay. Yeah, and so that's actually what Basil's main job is, um, is to detect my heart rate and to alert me if my heart rate goes way too high. Um, so she'll kind of come over and, and paw at me and let me know, hey, your, your heart rate's going crazy. How and, can she um, know? That is. <laughs> it's based I'm on just, sense. How does that I work? Know. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating that there's like a whole science that could be like looked at at service dogs and how they're trained and how that yeah. all works. But uh, she does it based on sense. So I trained her using um, saliva samples when my heart rate was at different levels, mm -hmm. and so she has learned to alert me at certain levels, whether I'm, and that's different depending on whether I'm sitting or standing. Mm -hmm. So it's mostly the increase that she's noticing. So she can mm -hmm. smell when my heart rate kind of starts to increase and she'll come over and let me know. Wow. Um, and it's, yeah, I'm very, very impressed Amazing. with her. That is so cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, and she also does some mobility tasks for me. So she'll pick things up and she does help me get around. So yep. when, one way I kind of move around more easily is, is using a mobility harness with her. Um, and I use a lot of braces. So I have leg braces that I use for hiking and yeah. camping and for field work and things like that. But okay. yeah, it, it'll be really interesting to see my next field season hopefully will be 
this coming summer. We've mm -hmm. had two that we've missed now with um, COVID. So that's, that's why I haven't really been able to test out um, all these new measures that I have mm -hmm. in place to help help with my disabilities. Okay. And how does it work in the lab? Is she with you in the lab or does she sit next to you in the microscope and basically just wait yeah. for you to, yeah? Yeah, she absolutely does. Um, yeah, so she has a lab coat and goggles and boots and Amazing. ear protection. Yeah, <laughs> okay. so she has her whole set of PPE. Uh -huh. um, and I think, that, yeah, there was a recent like, article in blog Toronto that had her image on it. Um, I was just seeing really quickly if I had it, but I don't have it pulled up. Um, but yeah, so she has all of her own PPE, personal protective equipment, and she comes into certain labs with me. She doesn't mm -hmm. have full access to everywhere in the museum, but she comes into the lab where I cut up my fossil okay. specimens and makes in sections. And yeah, she sits on a, on a mat there and just sort of watches me and waits. <laughs> Let nice. me know if anything goes wrong. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But I'm sure it wasn't easy to get her the lab access, right? <laughs> I guess. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, that must have been a bit tricky to overcome bureaucracy with this. Yeah, it was. It's interesting. I had thought about it a lot before I approached um, the museum and the university about service dog access because it's not something you see very often. So I wasn't sure how quite to approach it. Yeah. Um, thankfully, I did find uh, Joey Ramp, who's a neuroscientist and service dog handler. Mm -hmm. She does a lot of advocacy with her service dog, service dog Samson on social media, very, very popular and wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, and she actually has put guidelines into place for labs um, on safety protocols, what kind of equipment and what kind of training should be required in order to open up a lab to a service dog. Mm -hmm. um, that way the university um, isn't just kind of floundering around saying, oh, yeah. there's, there's, no, there's no protocol for this, there's no way to do this. Yeah. So it's really, really helpful to have that. So I took that basically to the university and the ROM and talked about, okay, here's what I'll do. She'll be trained not to lick objects um when we're out working and you know not don't to, mouth like, it, please yeah <laughs> yeah yeah not to approach people and not you know to stay on her mat unless she needs to alert me and yeah she does pick up she picks up items for me at home so one important change is teaching her that she can only pick it. up something if i tell her she can't okay. pick up things in the lab yeah Right. So if I drop something in the lab, she has to know, like, I don't just pick that up automatically for mom because it could have something on it that she shouldn't um, encounter. So we've gone through that training and yeah. she's doing really well. And the That's museum amazing. and the university were actually pretty supportive once once I had this yeah. like thing to show them on uh, the protocols okay. for it. Yeah. And yeah, this let this, oh, did this let you become an advocate for disability in STEM as well? this whole procedure of yeah having to go through this and having to convince yeah. people well yeah yeah it's really it's opened um it's it's really made it very clear to me that there's there's more need for for more people pushing for this um joey's work is amazing and she's doing a lot um mm -hmm. i think the more the more scientists we have in different fields who have who are disabled in some way 
or have, you know, have mobility devices or have service dogs, um, the more of us that are, are vocal about the access barriers that we're facing, I think the better things will be. So if we mm -hmm. can try to push and, and be visible, it's harder and harder for other people to say, well, I didn't think there were any disabled people in this field, yeah. or I didn't think this was a problem because we're here trying to talk about it. Um, okay. So that really, yeah, it really made me much more passionate about talking about these things, um, yeah. being very public about, about all of this. Uh, it's pretty recent for me in the last couple of years that I've started mm -hmm. to be a lot more public <laughs> nice. about this stuff. Yeah, just hoping to to improve access, especially in um, museums. Universities are starting to shift. Mm -hmm. Museums are sort of behind the curve on that um, because I don't think they're, there's not quite the same institutional um, like demand. There's not often students at every museum, right? It's a very yeah. different environment. So excited to kind of push for that through through the museum route as well. Yeah. Okay, we have to stop pause here because you're frozen. Oh no! <laughs> I, did, I didn't want to interrupt you. Um, may you just turn your camera off for a second and then turn it back on? Sure. Helps. Yeah. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right. Okay, there you are. <laughs> Something that happens. Okay. Um, so yeah, let's just move on. Um, okay. So what kind of projects do you do to advocate for disability in, in STEM or in, in the museums? Is there anything particular that you support, social media, I don't know, showing the dog yeah. everywhere you go? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do a lot of outreach with Faisal yeah. and her very adorable, sleepy Faisal. Try to show, <laughs> show everybody, yeah, she's very cute. Nice. Um, so yeah, I, I try to be as visible with her as possible as part of it. Um, but I do a few structured things. So through the ROM, I've been invited to do a few uh, of their outreach. Um, what is it called? Sorry. Uh, a few of their outreach, like virtual events for mm -hmm. families and kids. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of them was like the, the ROM kids show. And then they recently did a workshop through their summer camp that was virtual. So they've had me on to talk about what are service dogs and what do they do and uh, what do I do and how yeah. do service dogs like factor into science and museums and all of that. So that's been really fun and has been, it's been really cool to get questions from kids um, oh, yeah. who, who by and large, like from their feedback, just didn't, don't really see disabled scientists and they have good questions. So that's been really helpful. Okay. And um, yeah, that's been one of my favorite uh, outreach opportunities that I've had so far. I've also um, contributed to uh, some of the literature that's starting to come out a little bit. So mostly as an interviewee at this point, but yeah. I would love to actually write about this at some point myself. Yeah. Um, but uh, Basil and I were featured in a recent Nature Communications article on service dog access nice. in science. And okay. um, it was really nice to be able to provide a sort of perspective on, on museums because a lot of the other um, responses that they have been highlighting for the last couple of years are, are university-based. So it was really great to add like a museum um, yeah. aspect to that. Nice. Yeah. And uh, then I also serve on the uh, DEI committee for the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and through that, I've been trying to um, start to organize around more disabled scientists, disabled paleontologists, try to at least reach out um, to the student uh, body and membership at of that um, organization. So it's sort of the start. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to build that into something more where we actually have more of a okay. support network for disabled paleontologists yeah. to talk about what are our field work options? What are our access needs? What needs to change in paleontology yeah. to let more disabled scientists participate? Right now, it's kind of the very early stages. Yeah. So we're just so, sort of starting yeah. the community. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. That's so good. Good luck with that. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> Thank it's you. really important, I guess. So what do you think yeah. are the steps that need to be done right now to increase inclusivity into, in STEM? Uh, that's a great question. There's so many things. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think one of the most important first steps is bringing disabled people into positions where they are, are actually able to make some of these decisions or at least have their voices yeah. heard. So bringing disabled people into decisions about fieldwork logistics and about how meetings are planned. Mm -hmm. um, I have not often seen a meeting organized from any sort of society that asks its membership, what are accommodations that would be helpful yeah. from a disability standpoint? Um, it's often left, uh, not just in conferences, but across the board, universities, everywhere, businesses, accommodations for disabled people are often left up to the individual disabled person. Mm -hmm. So they have to encounter a problem and then try to tell someone about the problem. And yeah. we also then have to come up with the solution and tell like people what the solution is and yeah. then hope that it gets implemented. So it's For a next lot of, conference. So yeah, yeah, it's a lot, it's a lot of yeah. like retroactive stuff. And it's a lot of work on individual disabled people um, rather than kind of preventatively taking a look at how do we set this up? Is there a way to make it more accessible? Mm -hmm. I think captions and remote access are really good examples of that that we've seen throughout the pandemic, yeah. um, where a lot of things have become more accessible for a lot of disabled people through the last year and a half or so. And unfortunately, that is starting to go away pretty rapidly um, as we try to move into a post-COVID, even though it's, we're not post-COVID. Um, yeah. a, a lot of remote uh, options are being removed and it's actually causing a pretty increased access barrier. Um, so I think, I think just considering more of those things, having disabled people in the room to talk about that because it might yeah. not occur to someone who's non-disabled uh, that there are benefits to remote yeah. access. I know, I know a lot of us have struggled with like virtual class and virtual teaching, but there are upsides as well. We just yeah. we actually need to be listening to more yeah. disabled scientists for yeah. that. That's yeah. good. That's, yeah, that sounds so important. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And what are the, uh, what is the feedback that you, for example, get on social media? Is there a lot of understanding in the field or are people rather like really careful of the, I don't want to intrude. I don't want to ask too many questions because you know, people. Yeah. It's sort of uh, a mix of both of the, <laughs> yeah, the things you just mentioned. Yeah. So some people are very receptive. I got a lot of positive feedback last year after our first 
it was the first time we actually purposefully included disability um, in a workshop discussion of diversity in paleo at our society mm -hmm. conference. And um, it's been sort of mentioned before, but this was the first time we were like, this is a whole set of DEI issues that need to be talked about. And I got a lot of positive feedback uh, from folks saying, oh, I, I never thought to include an access statement for service dogs on the museum website. That's a great yeah. idea. Um, so that was really awesome. Uh, so there's been a lot of feedback like that yeah. um, that gives me a lot of hope for increased access or at least increased um, receptiveness mm -hmm. <laughs> to some of these changes. Uh, and then some of it is pretty clearly uncomfortable. Yeah. So there is a there's an interesting taboo around disability where a lot of non-disabled people are very uncomfortable talking about it. And I'm very uncomfortable with the language of disability. And it's not like malicious or anyone's fault whatsoever. It's because it, culturally, mm. most of us don't get exposed to disability and disability so rights many, and yeah. the language around that. Of course. And yeah, so like anything we don't know, it's uncomfortable. Yeah. And there's this fear of like offending people and to the point where I have, honestly, I have quite a lot of interactions with people trying to correct me on the terms I use as a disabled person because okay. they're worried. Yeah, they're worried that I'm creating some sort of offense, unfortunately, um, okay. rather than just kind of being open to it. So there's, there's interesting pushback on me even saying I'm a disabled scientist instead of saying I'm a scientist with disabilities. So it's, it's kind of runs the gamut. Yeah. There's, as a communicator, uh, I ask myself, why? <laughs> why that's a that great question. <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah, what? That's a great question. Yeah, I, there's an interesting debate between mostly non-disabled people who want to advocate for disabled people mm -hmm. over what's called person-first language versus identity-first language. So okay. person first would be person with a disability yeah. and identity first would be disabled person. Yeah. Now, decades ago in one of the initial pushes for disability rights as a civil rights issue, person first language was very important because there was a big push to see disabled people as people yeah. because that wasn't really happening for a long time. Um, and so it's important. The history of person-first language is important. But currently, right now, most, the majority of disabled people prefer identity-first language because there's a common feeling that we shouldn't have to remind anyone that we're people first, yeah. that that should be a given, and that our disabilities are inherent to how we move through the world and if we aren't able to talk um, precisely and say things like disabled person, if we're not able to talk in that way about it, it's going to be much harder to actually confront the access barriers that we face in an inaccessible society. Yeah. And so by leading with disability, we're sort of saying there are problems here that yeah. need to be addressed that are mostly in society rather mm -hmm. than inherent to me as the disabled person. The access barriers aren't 100% in society, especially as a person with chronic illness. I have access yeah. barriers within my own body, but 
most of the problems I face are not my disability. They're the fact that society is yeah. not accessible for me. Yeah. So that becomes an issue. But yeah, I get a lot of kind of confusing uh, feedback on like people trying to police how I I as a disabled person talk about disability. Okay. So, yeah. The feedback really runs the spectrum of yeah. excellent to kind of odd. <laughs> okay. What do you do? Are you just saying as it is, or do you sometimes just think like, oh, I'm not ready for this battle right now, or just? Oh, it depends. Usually, it depends. I just say, oh, I understand uh, why person-first language is important. However, most disabled people prefer identity first, and that's how I, I choose to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And I'll usually link to articles that, that, that do show the kind of breakdown in percentages of, of um, identity first language preference. Yeah. So I sort of take that route. I have like a standard reply draft. <laughs> I see, of course. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. Yeah. This has been absolutely amazing. Um, <laughs> Now, at the end of our interviews, we always have like a couple of random questions that more or less have something to do with science. It's just to awesome. get to know you personally a bit more, even though we already know a lot about you now, and the <laughs> challenges you face every day. Um, can I just start these? Sure, yeah. Okay, the qu first question is, what was your favorite subject at school? Ooh history oh my gosh it was really hard to choose geology um also anthropology i was really really interested in archaeology for a long time um, you had that at but school. yeah uh, well at school. i didn't have like a full unit on it but we were yeah. exposed to it within i think geology and geography was the class where we were exposed to it then okay yeah but i was always really interested in rocks so any of the earth science topics that we went yeah. over, uh, I was definitely the kid who was like in the gravel in the playground when it used to have gravel. I like picking through looking for fossils instead of like playing on the playground equipment. Okay. Yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and the next question. In one sentence, what are you truly passionate about? I am very passionate about increasing access for disabled scientists. Yes, and I can I can completely support that. And yeah, I think <laughs> you're doing a great job with this. It's amazing. It's amazing to Thank see. You. Um, what do you do in your free time? I train basil a lot. Okay. <laughs> I do a lot of basil training. I cook and I spend a lot of time taking care of my body because of my chronic illnesses. Yeah. So, I do a lot of, of medical maintenance, um, okay. but it's okay because I'm sort of an anatomy nerd. So, you know, it fits in with my other. Okay. okay. So you still have to train her or is, it, or is it just like to keep her like on top of things? Oh, yeah. I don't know exactly. whether you Sorry. can say it like this. Yeah. Oh okay. yeah, no, that's perfect. That's exactly what you would call it uh, is maintenance training, but she is actually still in training. Ah, okay. So she's only, uh, she's only 20 months old. Okay. So she's and she's doing incredible with her training. So I am still actively training her. And then all service dogs uh, require maintenance training where mm -hmm. you spend at least a little bit of time every day kind of doing basic commands with them and keeping up on their okay. on their their training. Yeah. And do you do that on your own or is someone helping you with this? Or uh, I do a lot of it myself. Yeah, I trained I had a service dog before Basil and I okay. trained that that service dog as well and it was 
quite a learning process and I had help from from friends and trainers and mm -hmm. a lot of online resources uh, that help teach you how to do this um, but yeah so far I have been training Basil um, partly on my own and also consulting with a training group in Toronto for for help with some nice. of the tasks yeah well it's that's incredible I don't know <laughs> that's absolutely amazing <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty fun it's one of my one of my favorite hobbies is is dog training so okay yeah so cool. it fits pretty well. yeah okay <laughs> um uh, what is your favorite movie including dinosaurs oh gosh that's a really bizarrely difficult question <laughs> i don't want to i don't want to give the like very stereotypical answer of jurassic park no. but, um <laughs> One of the original Jurassic Park really did have a huge impact on me. I know that's like the answer every paleontologist tries not to give because um, it's too obvious, but it had a huge impact on me. I have a signed like picture of Laura Dern who played the, the paleobotanist in it. And I distinctly remember multiple parts of the movie where I was like, that's a girl being a scientist. Yeah in a movie so it was it was more her than the dinosaurs really so okay um, that's, that's uh, so good yeah, yeah. i never yeah. even thought of that to be honest okay that's yeah that's amazing absolutely <laughs> okay and the last question is what would you do if you were donated 10 million dollars to your project your research Ooh. project Ooh. with my research oh, yeah. oh wow as a PhD candidate, or can I pretend I am a? You my can own do whatever you want. It's, uh, <laughs> it's I imaginary would definitely... ten million dollars in your imaginary <laughs> position of wherever yeah. you are. I would absolutely start a histology lab based okay. very much on the one that I'm at currently at the Royal Ontario Museum, and also the one that I worked at at um, the Museum of the Rockies. I would love to start my own histology lab and try to uh, provide as much access as possible to that kind of equipment and specimens that could be used for histological study. I would also open a lab setting with multiple different lab types. So like okay. rock cutting labs, imaging labs, chemistry labs for specifically for training service dogs in lab settings to okay. try to create a training program that service dog handlers could then access, um, preferably for free or with scholarships, yeah. so that they could then have something to show to institutions that are trying to keep them out by saying that service dogs can't be in a lab. Mm -hmm. Honestly, that would be my dream is to, to run my own lab and also have it open to service dogs who are yeah. training so that they can go to their institutions and be in their labs safely. That's amazing. That sounds like a great <laughs> idea. I would, I would just give you the $10 million right away. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it would be such a fun lab to work in. Can you imagine working in a lab with like multiple service dogs and lab coats with their oh, goggles? Oh, <laughs> so nice. So cute. <laughs> wow. Okay, Jade, thank you so much for taking the time. It has been an absolute pleasure to talking to you. Yeah, um, thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad that Basil could join us as well. <laughs> <laughs> me too, even though she slept through it all. <laughs> ah, that's fine. People are going to love it. <laughs> okay, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. And that's it for this week's episode of STEM to Views. Tune in again to hear more research stories from the scientists themselves. Until next time, you can follow us on Twitter at STEMcognito 
and on Instagram, also at STEMcognito, where you can keep up to date with our latest guests, video uploads and science communication tips, and also watch the video version of this interview. See you over there.